0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Hundreds of years before the Industrial Revolution, All the ingenuity of humankind was devoted to the building, not of machines, but of monuments. Not of bridges, roads and railways, but of cathedrals. With only primitive tools, God's architects created a glimpse of heaven on earth. This is the story of the faith they carved in stone and the events that shook them to their foundations. Canterbury is one of the greatest cathedrals in the world and the most important medieval building in Britain. It's been the focus of Christian worship in England for 14 centuries. Yet the cathedral of today was shaped by a series of events that happened in a single decade. The most infamous murder of the Middle Ages. A devastating fire. A revolution in stone that soared to heaven, but took a bloody toll on earth. The defining moment in the history of Canterbury Cathedral was December 29th, 1170. It was five o'clock in the evening, and the monks were singing vespers. In the cloisters, the Archbishop, Thomas Becket, was being urged by his followers to flee for his life. It was the final act in a conflict that had divided Christendom for almost a decade. Thomas Beckett was one of the great men of the Middle Ages, a man whose physical presence matched his political prestige.
2: Beckett was a very tall man, at least six foot or slightly taller. And if you imagine this is at a time when most men were probably about five foot, he would have been quite an astonishing man to see, very impressive in every way. He was tall and he had an aquiline nose and sharp, piercing eyes. He is the sort of man who would have stood out in any company.
1: How did such a man come to be fleeing for his life through the cloisters of Canterbury Cathedral? He had been the chancellor, the right-hand man of King Henry II, and his friend.
3: His reputation in life was that of a magnificent man, the magnificent chancellor, if not the iron chancellor of the 12th century, a man who loved riches and who had become the friend of a great king.
2: Becket was about 15 years older than the young king, and yet he was able to share with him all of the pursuits that a young man was interested in. He loved hunting, for example. He loved riding. He could ride as well as any knight and there's evidence of the two young men sharing these pursuits together.
4: When important business had been dealt with, Thomas and the king would play together, like young boys of the same age. (laughs) Once they were out together, it was winter, bitterly cold, and they saw this old man dressed in rags.
1: Beckett was wearing a fine new cloak, much finer than the king's. This had not gone unnoticed.
4: So the king says to Thomas... Would it not be a great act of charity to give him a thick, warm cape to keep him warm through the winter?
2: To which the chancellor said, oh, yes, my lord, of course, but you should have the honor. And the king said, oh, no, you? to him. And so they started fighting over whose cloak would be given to the beggar.
4: A disturbance ensued, the king and the chancellor pulling and pushing. At last, the chancellor allows the king to win. And off they go with their arms around each other, laughing as if it's the best joke in the world. Never in Christian times were the two greater friends, nor more of the same mind.
2: This exactly exemplifies the relationship between the king and the chancellor. They're certainly close friends. At the same time, the king never let the chancellor forget who was master. Henry is number one. He's a masterful young king, go-getting, and also a young man on the make.
1: Henry would brook no dissent, but one giant hurdle stood in his way, and Canterbury was at the heart of it. Canterbury was the powerhouse of the English church, and in the 12th century, its allegiance was not to the crown, but to the Pope a pope who had authority over all christians commoner and king even king henry the
2: for henry there was a problem it was easy enough to impose his power over the nobility it was not so easy with the english church he wanted to bring it within the ambit of his ever widening authority so he needed to control this church
1: and so in 1170 The cathedral at Canterbury became the stage for a violent conflict between the Roman Church and the English Crown, a conflict that had been brewing over several centuries. In 597 A.D., Canterbury had been chosen by St. Augustine and his black-robed monks as the site of the first Christian mission from Rome to England, the pagan England of the Angles and the Saxons.
5: The story, as I've heard, is that some of our people were sent to Rome as slaves to Rome, and His Holiness Pope Gregory saw them in the slave market and wanted to know who these people were, with their their pale complexions and their golden hair. And he was told these are Angles, from the place we now call England. And he looked at them, and he said, non angli sed angeli, not Angles, but angels. So. He sent Augustine to England to convert them to the faith of Christ and he came to Canterbury.
1: The Angles were peacefully converted and the church founded by St. Augustine at Canterbury became the headquarters of the new and dynamic Christian faith. Over the next 500 years, The cathedral was enlarged by successive builders and surrounded by a great walled monastery. It became a bastion of the Roman church in England. And its archbishop was the second most important man in the kingdom after the king himself, the man who stamped the king's rule with the authority of God. The king wore the crown, but it was the archbishop of Canterbury who crowned him. Who acted as his spiritual father and could bless or blight his reign with the might of the Catholic Church. And so Henry II came up with what seemed a remarkably good idea. He would make his friend Thomas Becket the next Archbishop of Canterbury.
2: With Thomas as Chancellor and Archbishop, he hoped to solve the problem of the Church in one fell swoop. In a sense, Church and state would be together in Henry's pocket if he could make it work. But everything was going to depend on the actions of Thomas Beckett.
1: And Beckett said no. He couldn't serve two masters, God and the king.
4: He would lose either his beloved lord, the king, or he would lose God. For if he... Submitted to the command of the king in his plots against the church. (laughs) What would God make of that? So he says to him, I know my lord king inside out. You would turn your face against me and replace your favours with the most savage hatred.
1: But the king had his way. Beckett was crowned Archbishop of Canterbury and made his choice. He made it very clear to Henry that he could serve only one master. And that master was God. The new archbishop rejected the king's plans to bring the church to heel.
3: Instead, he stood up for church rights or freedoms as he saw them. Becket became the symbol, the icon, of a much more general universal struggle. The church was gaining in power in the 12th century. The crown, secular power, was gaining in power at the same time. And, inevitably, the two would conflict. And Becket became the point of conflict. King Henry called Becket to account. The archbishop must
1: obey his commands or face exile and ruin. Becket was unmoved. And so he was banished stripped of his wealth and exiled with his entire family to France. Benedict of Canterbury, one of the great builder monks of the age, paid tribute to his endurance.
6: For six years he was exiled. But despite the pressures that were brought to bear, he would not submit. He was like a stone, hammered and shaped into the walls of a cathedral. The more he was pushed, the firmer he... The more... The more steadfast did he prove. The Christian world was divided
1: by the conflict. Which of the two men would be the first to crack? Under pressure from the Pope, the king backed down. Beckett returned in triumph to Canterbury. Promptly sacked three bishops who'd taken the king's side.
2: The bishops who had been excommunicated or uh, suspended from authority went to the king. They met him probably on Christmas Day, 1170, and poured out their anger and their fury that Becket had come back and issued sentences against them. <laughs> moment henry loses it and cries out in great anger what useless drones have i been feeding in my court who are unable to avenge the honor of their lord he said the man ate my bread
4: he came to my court poor and i raised him up high and now he he, he kicks me in the teeth the grief goes to my heart and there's no one to avenge me
2: that was at that moment that four nights four Barons, apparently hearing these words, saw the opportunity to acquire favor in the king's eyes. And they swore together to go and indeed avenge the honor of their lord.
4: And so four of his men swore an oath to take revenge for the king's shame. Wherever they might find him, they swore they would pull out his tongue and dig his eyes out of his head. And neither church, nor altar, nor holy day would protect him. The first was Reginald Fitzers, son of the man they call the Bear, and with all the savagery of that beast. The second, Hugh de Morville, which translates as the village of death. The third, William de Tracy, brave in battle but steeped in sin. The fourth, Richard Le Bret, whose depravity turned him from bret to brute. So, on the fifth day of Christmas, these four barons of the king, with several of their men, came to Canterbury, while others surrounded the city.
1: With Canterbury surrounded, the four knights and a handful of their followers rode into the archbishop's palace.
2: When they went to Canterbury, I think the main aim of the four knights was to capture the archbishop and bring him back, probably to stand trial before the king. They took off their armor, which was the appropriate thing to do, and attempted to arrest him in his own palace. Becket refused to be arrested, partly because they had no mandate. They had no right to arrest him. They were simply four barons from the court without a command from the king. So they withdrew from the presence of the archbishop, went out into the courtyard and put on their armor. While that was happening, the men around Becket, monks and clerks, clearly had apprehensions about what would happen next. And so they dragged the archbishop into the cathedral.
1: But Becket was a reluctant fugitive. There are a number of eyewitness accounts from the monks who were with Becket at the time.
7: Leave it. Leave it. They went to bolt the door of the church, but the archbishop turned to them and said, it is not right to uh, turn the house of prayer into a fortress. It's defense enough without that. And then he said, we will triumph over the enemy, not by fighting, but by suffering. For we have come to suffer, not to resist.
5: He asked his attendants of what they were afraid. And when the clerks began to fall into disorder, he said to them, depart, you cowards. Let these blind madmen go on in their career. We charge you in virtue of your obedience not to lock the door.
2: As in so much of Beckett's life, there's conflict and contradiction. On the one hand, he wanted to be the good and great archbishop. On the other, he was a man frightened. Death he could face, but there was the possibility of physical mutilation. And I'm thinking here of castration and blinding, and Thomas was certainly afraid of that. So as he partly fled and was partly pulled into the cathedral, these conflicting ideas are in his mind. One stand and defy, the other possibly flee in case something worse than death will befall you. And he chose to stand and defy.
5: After they had rushed through the open door, they separated, Us taking to the left and the other three turning to the right. The archbishop had only ascended a few steps, and he heard Fitzurse say, ''Where is the archbishop?'' Hearing this, he turned on his step and he was the first to reply.
6: ''Well, here I am.''
5: He said, ''Why do you come before me now with weapons in your hands?'' and Fitzurse declared, You shall soon find out. Are you not that notorious traitor?
8: I'm no traitor, just a priest of God. What do you want me? I am no traitor and I will not come with you.
7: He turned to his left under a pillar uh, with the Virgin Mary, statue of the Virgin Mary on his one side and, and the altar of Saint Benedict on the other. He was. And then they were all around him shouting.
6: Satisfaction!
8: Satisfaction! I've had no satisfaction! I will absolve no man until I have had satisfaction. Then you will die and be buried!
9: I'm ready.
4: you will not lay a hand he on
5: he said to my them head. i forbid you to touch any one of
4: my followers
6: but he said as for me i willingly embrace death one of them i don't know which struck off his cap he hit him in the
4: back between the shoulder blades with his with the flat of his sword and said run run you're dead you're a dead man but he wouldn't run and he was holding on to
7: the pillar and they were shouting, ''Then you'll die and get what you deserve.''
4: I'm your archbishop, God's anointed. You you were nothing, you
6: bastard!
7: The archbishop called him a pimp because Fitzhers was the procurer of, of women, uh, loose women for the court. But the
4: archbishop pushed him away. He picked one of them up by the tunic, picked him up with one hand and shook him and flung him to the ground. This was De Tracy, I think.
7: It was Fitzers, the bear, the one they called the bear. Uh, they were all wearing helmets,
6: so all, all you could see was their eyes. Then the knight he'd called a pimp aimed a great blow to the archbishop's head. And it was a monk. He put his arm up to ward off the
7: blow. And it cut halfway through my arm. I, I, I felt it cut into the bone. It just went through, and I fell back. And the Archbishop is, is still holding onto the pillar, but there's a, there's a great wound in his head here. The sword must have glanced off my arm and into his face. And there's blood running down his face, down the side of his face. Then they hit him again, a, a second blow. He's still holding onto the pillar. But at the third blow, he uh, he goes down on his hands and knees onto the ground, and as he lay there, another one strikes and a fourth blow. It was so hard, so much. The, the sword shears straight through the crown of his head and shatters, breaks on the stone. Goaded on by the. Author
5: of this confusion, these butchers then dashed out his brains.
4: And then another, not a knight, but a clerk, Hugh of Horsey, who we call Clark, the evil clerk. He took a dagger and spilled out the brains with the blood all over the pavement, and called out to the others, he won't get up again.
1: Let's go. Then the... ...had been desecrated, forever stained with the blood of its archbishop. But what happened next brought a new and enduring glory.
2: Immediately after the murder, I think there was sheer horror and fear and uncertainty on the part of...
1: the. ...had been desecrated, forever stained with the blood of its archbishop. But what happened next brought a new and enduring glory.
2: Immediately after the murder, I think there was sheer horror and fear and uncertainty on the part of those around. They were terrified because they didn't know what the knights would do next. But the body lay where it had fallen for four or five hours. And during that time, the people of Canterbury went in and through that night, there was the beginning of a sense that something extraordinary had happened. This brutal murder was a sacrilege which turned Beckett into a martyr, a man who had died for God. And one can see a changing attitude on the part of those who were present in the cathedral, from horror to fear to veneration.
6: As he lay on the pavement where, where he'd fallen, some battled their fingers in the blood. ...and their eyes with it. Others uh, filled cups and jars... ...and made away with as much as they could. Some dipped in parts of their clothes.
1: The next day, there was a rumor... ...that the knights were coming back for the body either to drag it through the city at the back of a horse or to hang it from a gibbet and dump it in a swamp or a sewer. So the monks decided to bury him quickly without any ceremony in the crypt.
2: Becket's burial had to be hurried in order to make the body safe and secure. And so they were not able to carry out the full ceremony. And so it was deemed that the body did not need washing because He was a martyr and he had been bathed in his own blood. And so they simply took off his outer garments down to his underwear. And his underwear was actually a hair shirt and hair breeches. And then they clothed him in his full archiepiscopal dress. And so he was laid in a tomb in the crypt of the cathedral.
1: Beckett was dead and buried. But his
4: impact on the cathedral was just beginning. One of the people from the town dipped his shirt in the archbishop's blood and then went home to his wife, who'd been paralyzed for many years. And when he told her what had happened, she asked him to bathe her with the blood of the holy martyr, the blood mixed with water. And so it was done. And she was cured there and then
2: with a lot of medieval miracles. The kinds of conditions being cured uh, are sometimes lameness or speech impediments, sometimes the kind of illness which can be affected by a sudden psychological shock. So I think the miracles are real enough. Um, We only know the successful ones.
6: There was a man called Kerberan, a cobbler from Dover, and he prayed for the archbishop's soul. And the blessed martyr appeared to him in a dream and told him that he should go to a certain mill and look under a tree, an elder tree, and take what he'd find there. And the next day he went there to where he'd been told and he found a large coin covered in rust. And when the rust had been cleaned off, you could see the face in the inscription of the Roman emperor, Diocletian. It was pure
3: gold. Beckett, within hours almost of his assassination, proved to be a wonder worker. The first miracles we hear of are within a few days of his death. So there were very, very few events in the history of the Middle Ages that could compare with the, not only the dramatic death of Beckett, but the remarkable aftermath, the phenomenal healing miracles, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of miracles carefully written down, two million words written down uh, in his lifetime about Beckett uh, and after his death.
1: Evidence of Beckett's sanctity fueled a growing public anger towards his killers and forced them to flee abroad eventually serving a lifetime's penance as crusaders in the Holy Land. While their royal master, Henry II, sought his own absolution at the scene of the crime.
2: Virtually everybody believed that he was uh, morally responsible for Becket's murder. And what did Henry do? He went on a great pilgrimage to Canterbury in 1174, where he did penance prostrate on the ground before the tomb of his adversary. Henry needed to restore his reputation as far as he could and as quickly as he could. He was engulfed in a great rebellion. Uh, Virtually all of England rebelled. The King of Scotland invaded And it was believed generally by the ordinary population that the rebellion was God's punishment for the murder of Becket. As luck would have it, on the very day he performed his penance, the King of Scotland was captured. And so the chroniclers say that this was proof that Becket had forgiven the King. I don't think it was just politics, because every time he came back from the continent, he went to Canterbury first, uh, made offerings at the tomb, and then conducted whatever was the rest of his business, every single year, with only one exception. Now, that suggests that there's more than mere political calculation. I think he he felt some remorse ...because Henry II was a believer, he believed in the Last Judgment... ...and he knew that ultimately he would have to face Christ... ...and answer for what he had done. By
3: 1173, very quickly, St. Thomas is canonized, very rapid canonization indeed. Only St. Francis in the 13th century really compares with him. And after that, uh, uh, the church witnesses an increasingly uh, developed pressure from pilgrims and from the sick to gather actually in the building around St. Thomas's tomb.
6: Rich and poor, noble and commons, fathers and mothers with their children, lords with their households, people come from far and wide, from overseas, from all over Christendom. More than to Rome or Santiago, uh, even Jerusalem. The streets round the cathedral are so crowded, and with the shops and the stalls, every day is like unto market day. The monks
1: were overwhelmed. Beckett's fame demanded a bigger, grander stage than Canterbury could provide. And Beckett, as usual, would have his way. In the summer of 1174, Burning thatch from a nearby house landed on the roof of the cathedral. Within minutes, the entire east end of the building was in flames. The cathedral lay in ruins. Gervase of Canterbury, one of the eyewitnesses to Becket's murder, was now witness to the destruction.
5: Think now what mighty grief oppressed the hearts of the sons of the church under this great tribulation. I verily believe the afflictions of Canterbury were no less than those of Jerusalem of old, and their lamentations were as the lamentations of Jeremiah. We put up, as best we could, an altar and station in the nave of the church, where we might wail and howl rather than sing the daily and nightly services.
3: The monks have a tremendous problem on their hands, because they've got this this wreck of a building where, where essentially, the whole of the uh, inside of the building has been gutted. And the monks are very, very careful about their custody of the relics. Because, after all, Beckett is not the only saint they have in the church. They have a whole phalanx of holy archbishops stretching back to the dim and distant past that they must look after. They get the relics and the reliquaries out of the church as it's burning down. The monks have to undergo a tremendous upheaval. They use a very impressive image. They think of it as the expulsion from paradise.
5: Thus. like as the children of Israel were ejected from the land of promise, so the brethren remained in grief and sorrow for five years, separated from the people only by a
1: low wall. But out of adversity came opportunity. The cathedral's most sacred treasure, the body of Thomas Becket, lay untouched by flames in the crypt. Now the monks sought to capitalize on their greatest asset, by rebuilding the cathedral as a shrine to the martyred archbishop. They consulted masons from all over Europe and found a Frenchman from Sens near Paris who claimed he could restore their lost paradise.
5: Among the masons there had come a certain William of Sens, a man active and ready and most skillful both in wood and stone. Him, therefore, they retained on account of his... ...lively genius and good reputation and dismissed the others.
1: And then, having got the job, like many builders before and since... William shook his head and said, ...it's a lot worse than I thought it was. Or, as Gervaise puts it...
5: He ventured to confess that the pillars were rent with the fire... ...and all that they supported must be destroyed... ...if the monks wish to have a safe and excellent building.
3: He doesn't let them know the whole bad news until quite late on in the process. Then he breaks the news. He's a very tactful man, we're told. This is part of William of Sens's success. He's energetic, he's he's a good engineer in stone, but he's also good with people. In William of Sens,
1: the monks had found a builder of genius. He convinced them that he could build an entirely new style
3: of cathedral within the ruins of the old. What William of Sainz accomplishes is a a masterful blend, in a way, of the old and the new. And he's a good salesman for this brilliant new style. He's going to fit into the, uh, the, the, the walls, the curtain walls of the old church... ...a wonderful new, light, expansive, ambitious building... ...as a sort of canopy, principally to shelter the great new relic... ...that they've got on their hands, namely St Thomas himself. But
1: William of Sens planned to build far more than a canopy for a dead archbishop. He was going to reenact the murder of Thomas Becket in stone. And the blood and the gore would be a vital part of it. The stone was his first concern, and he looked across the channel to Caen in Normandy.
5: He addressed himself to the procuring of stone from beyond the sea. He constructed ingenious machines for loading and unloading ships and for drawing cement and stones.
1: Fleets of ships brought the huge stone blocks upriver to Canterbury, where William's ingenious machines loaded them onto ox carts to take them to the site. Within weeks of landing the job, William of Sons had turned the burned-out shell of the cathedral into a builder's yard employing several hundred workers. The monk Gervais now began a new chapter of his story, the final act in the drama of Becket's Canterbury, and one in which William of Sens would play the starring role.
5: He delivered molds for shaping the stones to the sculptors who were there assembled and diligently prepared other things of the same kind.
2: Each individual stone will have a number which corresponds to its position in the arch in ways like piecing together a jigsaw puzzle. And if you were buying a kit from Ikea, for instance, you would hope that somebody had checked that so that when you assembled your cupboard or bed at home, all the pieces, pieces were there and they fit together to make the bed. In the same way, the architectural masonry was numbered and then fitted together on site. It would have been a complete rebuild from almost ground level up. So in a way, it gave them the opportunity to do exactly what they did, and that was to introduce the Gothic style into England.
1: The Gothic style was a French innovation, characterised by soaring vaults and long pointed arches and windows. It seemed, certainly to the monks and workers at the time, to defy gravity. Neither William nor his associates left any written record of how they achieved it.
8: A later generation of architects could only guess. We haven't actually got their writings or their description or their brief, but what we can conclude from what we see is that they were making the walls lighter, and you can achieve that by building buttresses, right angles to the walls, to bear the weight
1: of the roof. The buttresses meant that the cathedral walls could be higher and thinner with lots of windows, but William realised that the buttress itself could be lighter
8: and can cut holes in it. And Effectively, that's what flying buttresses is, they just fly from the top of the roof, taking the thrust down to the ground. To us nowadays, it seems a very simple thing to do. I mean, we can span great openings and et cetera. but do remember that this is built of a material which is dug out of the ground. It's dead, inert, it can't be pulled, twisted or anything else. And with that material, they could span the space. That's the miracle of this. Within
1: five years of the fire, a new cathedral was rising from the ashes of the old. The walls were built and William made a start on the roof, climbing 50 feet of scaffolding to supervise the work.
5: Having completed the triforia and the upper windows, he was uh, at the beginning of the fifth year in the act of preparing with machines for the turning of the great vault. (laughs)
9: <laughs>
5: Thus, sorely bruised by blows from the beams and the stones. He was rendered helpless, alike to himself and for the work. No other person was injured. Not in the least. Against the master only was this directed. Whether by the vengeance
3: of God or the spite of the devil. Gervais makes a particular point of this. He says that this was either a a product of the vengeance of God... ...or the spite of the devil. And it sounds slightly from that 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 William might have been rather proud as well. There was a great concern in the 12th century... ...that buildings and architects and practitioners of the arts... ...shouldn't get above their station and shouldn't build too magnificently. I think there's no doubt that Gervais may have been a little bit ambivalent about William... ...as both a brilliant practitioner, but as also a, a, a bit bumptious.
1: William of Sens survived, but never worked again. His chronicler, Gervaise, now took a lead role in the story.
5: As the winter approached, and it was necessary to finish the upper vault, the master gave charge of the work to a certain ingenious and industrious monk, who was the overseer of the masons.
1: It's thought that this ingenious and industrious monk was Gervaise himself but his self-regard wasn't shared by the other monks.
5: An appointment whence much envy and malice arose because it made the young man appear more skillful than richer and more powerful ones.
1: And so a new master was appointed, another William, known simply as the Englishman.
5: William by name, English by nation small in body but in
3: workmanship of many kinds acute and honest we know next to nothing about William the Englishman except that he was English and that he was rather short what I think we do know is that he's putting into effect a plan in England from Purbeck in Dorset where it is still quarried today
1: he is of his own one was to finish the interior of the cathedral in marble like the great buildings of Imperial Rome But William found his marble in England, from Purbeck in Dorset, where it is still quarried today.
9: Quarrying's been going on here since the Norman conquest without interruption. The larger blocks that remain are in the region of 13 feet long. You're talking finished, finished blocks, finished slabs, in the region of three tons. So they were able to handle pretty heavy weights. We see this place on an ideal day. For much of the time, it would have been bedevilled by slipping clay. It would have been a quagmire such you could hardly pick your feet up with all the clay on it. It would have been very difficult. And one has to imagine the limitations they had in terms of hand tools, shifting all this material to get at the stone at this kind of depth from the surface. And I think the great cathedrals stand as m- monuments to their skill and. An effort. Here, if you like, is the more hidden side of the medieval achievement.
1: Once they were hauled out of the mud, the marble slabs were cut into smaller chunks for shipment to Canterbury.
5: They would have um, split the block using wedges and pits. A piece of steel put the, the wedge in the hole.
1: This technique was used to create hundreds of paving stones for the cathedral floor. Herbeck stone was used to even greater effect in the spectacular columns at Canterbury. But transforming the rough limestone into a column with a finish of fine Italian marble took days of polishing by hand or water-powered lathe
5: when it is polished it becomes a lovely blue when uh, compared to the local stones used in the, the cathedral buildings which were usually of a pale whitish color the contrast would have been something out of this world And if you were uh, living nearby in a mud hut you would perhaps thought that there really was a god when you see such buildings In
1: 1184 just 10 years after the fire 14 after the murder of Thomas Beckett the new cathedral was completed and it was a masterpiece no one in England had seen its
3: like. Canterbury was the most important building of its date probably anywhere in Europe. It was a revolutionary church, and its impact not only in England but abroad was, was wide and long-standing. Until now, churches had been dark, imposing edifices,
1: emphasizing the mystery of God. Canterbury, the first Gothic cathedral in Britain, presented a different image of the Almighty.
8: God is light... What the Gothic was doing was actually trying to make the structure as light and as delicate as possible. Making the walls appear lighter with larger windows than uh, the one's ever had before. That's the miracle of this because the building is reflecting the theology that light is the essence of God and, and Christ particularly. And that's why in these buildings we get as much glass as possible and clear space inside. Soaring right up.
3: It's just lifting one up to heaven, really. William Saus has planned this through from the, right from the start. He's thought about all these uh, effects of colour, glass, shiny reflective surfaces. ...which are leading the soul, the spirit of the viewer, of the pilgrim... ...whether the pilgrim is a humble peasant or all the most eloquent and, uh, you know, well-educated aristocrat... ...all alike are led in the same direction towards the Holy Trinity with whom St. Thomas is buried. There were so many
8: openings which they could actually fill with coloured glass and tell a story. And there's a, several stories here, but of course the, the principal stories were to tell the people about Beckett. This was the cathedral as theater,
1: a gothic tale of murder and sacrilege and miracles etched in stone and marble and glass. It took the pilgrim on a journey from darkness into light, from the horrors of the murder in the north transept to the crypt where the body had first been laid. And then up to the new Trinity Chapel, where Becket was now reburied in a magnificent tomb. ...sparkling with gold and precious stones.
8: The body was raised closer to heaven and put on a podium... ...and the building was built as a theatre then... ...climbing up and up and up to this great focus... ...bringing in this saint right into the heart of the people.
3: It is a concerted and deliberate attempt to create a kind of theatre of pilgrimage, where the pilgrims have a highly organised experience, but where the building itself expresses ideas about Beckett and made an impact on the emotions, uh, which changed the way people not only thought, but the way they felt. Let me give you a practical example of the way they think in, in, in symbolic terms. When Beckett is murdered, his brains and his blood are scattered on the pavement. They make a lot of this. They say the blood looks like the red of the rose. They say the brains look like the white lily... ...and the beautiful, smooth, paired columns that run around the site of Beckett's shrine. You'll find pink marble and white stones used together uniquely for a Gothic building. And it's very hard, I think, to avoid the conclusion that this was conscious. It was a deliberate allusion to the fact that Beckett died horribly here in this place. They understand the symbolic importance of Beckett's body parts, almost. They created the so-called corona, that remarkable crown-shaped building at the east end of the church, which, uh, as it were, is the, uh, the reliquary, the container on a grand scale for the, the, literally the crown of martyrdom, the corona, the top of Beckett's head struck off at the martyrdom and this new sense of the theater of a saint's body and of a shrine is something that is absolutely consciously developed.
1: The new cathedral brought pilgrims flocking to Canterbury from all over Europe. The holiday of a lifetime to view the latest sensation, chronicled by Chaucer in his Canterbury Tales.
2: When that tapril with his shore so, a the drift of march had persid to the rota, and bathed every vine in such liquor of which fair engendered is the floor, Than longen folk to go on pilgrimages, and specially from every sheer as end of Engelon to Canterbury they wend the holy blissful march your for to that hem hath holpen one that they were seeker.
1: For four centuries, three hundred and fifty years. Canterbury was the greatest pilgrimage in Europe. The cult of the martyred archbishop united all classes in veneration, from peasants to popes and kings. In death, if not in life, the archbishop had triumphed over his royal adversary. But then, in the 16th century, Canterbury was confronted by a new King Henry and a new crisis between church and crown.
2: The crisis began quite simply over Henry VIII's desire to divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry another queen. Uh, In order to do that, he had to have a dispensation from the Pope in Rome, a dispensation which the Pope uh, did not give. Therefore if Henry wanted to go forward and with his marriage he had to separate the English church from Rome.
1: And so he did and unleashed a wave of popular fury against the Catholic church.
2: Parallel with Henry VIII's political need, uh, there was growing in continental Europe and in England the protestant reformation which was attacking many aspects of the medieval church as irrelevant or as unchristian so the veneration of saints the cult of saints belief in miracles will be attacked
1: the protestants condemned the worship of saints as papist superstition canterbury and its martyred archbishop became a prime target
2: Here was an archbishop who had stood up against a king and won. He represents old Catholicism. He is a saint, he works miracles, pilgrims go to his shrine. So Beckett came to represent all of the aspects of medieval Christianity, which reformers and politicians were opposed to. And so his cult had to be obliterated as quickly and cleanly as possible.
1: And so it was. Canterbury was sacked, the Shrine destroyed, 26 cartloads of gold, silver plate and precious stones were hauled away to swell the King's coffers in London. A royal proclamation declared that Thomas Becket was a rebel, who had fled to France and treacherously called on the Pope to repeal wholesome English
6: laws. He shall no longer be named a saint. His pictures throughout the realm are to be plucked down, and his festivals shall no longer be kept, and the services in his name shall be raised out of all books.
1: It was not only Becket's name that was raised. His corpse, too, was reportedly set on a bonfire in the cathedral grounds and burned to ashes. the cathedral lost its star attraction, the body of the murdered archbishop. Or did it? On the night of August the 14th, 1990, Two men were spotted in the grounds of the cathedral. They carried the classic tools of burglary. But they were not burglars, they protested. They were veterans of the French Foreign Legion on a mission. They were out to prove that Thomas Beckett was still buried in Canterbury Cathedral. It had been rumoured for years that Beckett's remains had escaped the fire, removed by the monks before the King's men arrived in Canterbury and reburied in secret. These rumours were revived in 1888 when a skeleton was unearthed in the crypt. It was that of an adult male, aged about fifty, and about six foot two inches tall. The same age and height as Thomas Beckett. And the skull had been fractured in several places by blows from a heavy cutting instrument, such as a two-handed sword. But the crown of the skull was still intact. So was this someone else? Or were the accounts of the eyewitnesses wrong? In the darkness of a winter night, in a state of panic, did they really see the top of the skull severed by a sword? Or did they simply exaggerate and invent an injury that never existed? The questions remained unanswered. The corpse was reburied without ceremony in the crypt. But the controversy refused to die. If these were not Beckett's bones, and they hadn't been burned, where were they? The two intruders believed that they'd been hidden in the tomb of a French cardinal, close to the site of Beckett's shrine, and they were intent on removing one of the bones for forensic analysis. They were given a conditional discharge
6: after telling the court This is very serious, and we think people should know the bones are in there. We knew no one was going to believe us. If we went to the dean or the bishop, they would have just laughed at us. The
1: official view was that if the bones had been hidden, they would have been unearthed during the reign of Mary Tudor, when England briefly returned to the Catholic fold.
8: If the bones had still been around and the monks knew where they were, I'm certain they would have brought them up under the reign of Mary and built a shrine again, but they didn't. And so I think that the the bones were destroyed at that point. I think it would have been an amazing thing to have done um, when Mary came back to the throne. I'm sure she would have encouraged it. So to me, the body's gone, burnt, and disappeared.
2: I wish we knew whether the body were there or not. Um, I think there is a place in the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral in which some people believe there are some bones which may be Beckett's bones. Uh, My own feeling is that we should investigate and find out. If there is a possibility that the relics of this great Englishman, because that's really what he was, are still there, then we should investigate and find out. Um, But if he is still there and his bones were to be found, I have no idea what Canterbury Cathedral would do with them.
1: Whatever happened to Beckett's bones, his spirit permeates the fabric of the modern cathedral. For the pilgrims of today, this is the Cathedral of Thomas Beckett. But it's also the cathedral of the two Williams, the men who turned a murder into a masterpiece of the Mason's art. Out of the chaos of the killing came a new and magnificent order, enshrined in stone, a monument to the golden age of cathedrals, when the church was at the height of its wealth
8: and power.
2: Coming up next on BBC Two, a new series of A Seaside Parish.